Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. Emily Jane Fox is not with us today, but she'll be with us next week. You know, this show is called Inside the Hive. We don't really think too much about what that means, but the implication is buzz. Inside the Hive is where you find the buzz. And today's a very special day because we're inside the Hive today with two Vanity Fair correspondents who are pretty much two of the most buzzworthy journalists working in America today. And I, I'm not just saying that because I've known them for years. It's just true by the evidence of their work, which you can go out and seek in both print and podcast form. Welcome today to Inside the Hive, Vanessa Gregoriadis and Gabe Sherman. Hello. Hi, Joe. Hey, Joe. Can I make a buzzing sound? Like, zzzz. It is. <laughs> That's, please. That, that'll yeah. be good in people's eardrums. Exactly. I always think people are going to mistake this podcast for a beekeeping podcast, which would be, this would be their episode. They would get really confused right <laughs> off the top. Um, we're here to talk today about an enormous story. We won't be able to cover all of it in this episode because it's so rich, detailed, harrowing, repulsive and has to do with everything that Vanity Fair and The Hive are about, which is the intersection of power and money and sex and lots of other things uh, and, and the hideous behaviors that uh, often happen at those intersections. Uh, I just need to say right off the top that I'm in, I'm in the next to last episode of a podcast series called Fallen Angel, the Victoria's Secret Story, which is co-hosted by Vanessa and it's about the history of Victoria's Secret. Um, it's, wow, it, I am so involved in it. I am so, like, completely addicted to it. It's completely displaced succession in my life. And it also happens to be a true story, which makes it just unbelievable as you're listening to it. it it's not just the history of Victoria's Secret, though it's that and its impact on the culture um, and gr on girls and women, a whole generation of them that— you know, um, saw this mall retailer as kind of like, uh, you know, uh, what sexuality and sensuality meant in America. But it's also about the kind of gross wealthy men who exploited the models, 
the, the, the angels of Victoria's Secret who advertise their goods. And under the umbrella, it's all under the umbrella of this guy, Les Wexner, uh, who's this weird billionaire who lives in Ohio, who happens to be very good friends with a guy named Jeffrey Epstein. Very good friends. Weird, weird bros that we don't really understand the nature of the relationship. So anyway, that's all of which is to say that this week, the latest news is that Ghislaine Maxwell, who was a uh, alleged co-conspirator with Jeffrey Epstein, uh, her trial begins this week. So let's start there. Let's start at the top. What can we learn? What is happening right now this week in Manhattan uh, with this story, Gabe? So this week begins jury selection uh, in the long-awaited trial um, of Ghislaine Maxwell that uh, opening statements are expected uh, to take place on November 29th. So after we all return from our warm-hearted Thanksgiving, Joe, we will uh, have our um, our finally long-awaited trial. You know, this trial is being seen by many people as a, as a proxy for prosecuting Jeffrey Epstein, because as we all remember, Epstein was arrested in uh, July of 2019, um, where he was held in Lower Manhattan in, in federal prison and either killed himself or was uh, killed by others before he was able to stand trial. And so Ghislaine Maxwell is really the only one in his inner circle so far who is going to uh, face a jury and and have to answer for her uh, alleged crimes. And so that's why this trial takes on so much more significance, you know, other than the fact that she's being uh, accused of, you know, grisly descriptions of sex trafficking and abuse of, of underage girls. But, you know, on top of all of that, it's a way for the culture to finally get, the, and especially the victims of Epstein, to get justice, which, which they were denied. Well, you know, this story as uh, Vanessa well knows, is both one that it's icky, you know, but it's also riveting. <laughs> and I just want to ask you, Vanessa, because I'm, like I said, I'm nearly finished with the with the podcast. Didn't I think a new episode, the f- final, possibly the final episode came out this week. Is that true? No, it's next week, but close. Next week. Okay. Yeah, there's one more. So I'm not even on the next to last one. I'm on the next to last, next to last. Tell me about how you decided to make this podcast. I mean, it starts off with your co-host, Justine Harmon, uh, talking about uh, stealing a pair of panties from a friend when she was a teenager. Is, is panties a word that we can use? Is that like <laughs> I think a, that's all right. That's like an ancient crotchety <laughs> word to use. But it, yeah. it was uh, uh, like a she steals a pair of like um, a G-string, I should say, from a friend. And it's all about the kind of how Victoria's Secret shaped women's idea of sort of sophisticated sexuality. Was that true for you, too, coming up as a teenager? I stole no G-strings as a teenager. (laughs) I was not I was not part of that. You know, I'm a bit older and I also grew up in Manhattan where there wasn't like a ton of Victoria's Secrets, as far as I can recall. My main connection with Les Wexner was through Express, right? The Limited, which I used to go there. It was like Zara and I would go with my mom and get like a striped t-shirt and she'd also get a striped 
t-shirt. So I definitely knew who he was as like a, you know, king of retail. But I think that Victoria's Secret was really a mall brand, right? If you didn't like, I barely, I, I went, I didn't really go to a mall until I was like 17. Like, I was like, what the hell is this? I can get a pretzel, you know, like <laughs> I didn't know what was there. So, um, I mean, I, I think though that Victoria's Secret so colored, um, like American female sexuality that you really couldn't get away from it for the last 30 years. So really no matter what age you are, even if you never really like shopped at that store, you know, he changed what everybody wears under their clothes. Like he created the lingerie category and he created something that was sort of slutty with this idea that like the eighties power woman under her suit would be like wearing a garter belt. And like, you know, it was just this kind of like campy idea that then ate America. And, you know, I think Gabe, I know since we've talked about it, was really interested in this story because it's kind of the last puzzle piece of the Epstein story um, that hadn't been fully reported before Gabe reported it. Right. That there was a t- almost 20 year con that Jeffrey Epstein pulled on this billionaire from Ohio. And the nature of that relationship is not understood. I mean, that's a great story, right? And it was one that was sort of overlooked in all the talk about the young women and Palm Beach and the massages and blah, 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 blah. And I think for me, what I was interested in is, you know, I remember very vividly all the scandals around Pink and Abercrombie & Fitch, which is another company that Les Wexner owned. And this question of, you know, is it cool for a girl who's 12 to be wearing like panties that say on the back, like enjoy the view, you know, or pink or whatever, like the kind of increased focus on sexualization of teens and preteens, even if nobody expressly said in the company, that's who we're making these clothes for. It's sort of like, yeah, well, you know, 17 year olds didn't read 17 either. It was all like 12 and 13 year olds who really wanted to read 17, just the way like 12 and 13 year olds wanted to wear pink because their older sisters were wearing it. And um, so- Or the way 20 somethings read Teen Vogue because they can't afford the clothes in regular Vogue. Yeah, exactly. I remember that was a phenomenon. You're always- Yeah, there's, there's a lot of crossover. But to me, this question of like, you know, where- where is Les Wexner in the Jeffrey Epstein story of Jeffrey Epstein molesting young girls? Okay, maybe that's not gettable, right? In some ways, I think a lot of us think who have looked into it, it's not gettable. But there is something here in terms of the way that Les Wexner's companies treated the models, treated young girls who would buy the clothes, like the idea that this man who was so connected to Jeffrey Epstein is also the man who was making that lingerie that young girls were coveting. There's something unseemly about it and perplexing and interesting. And why? You know, and I'm not sure I really still have the answer of why, but it's an interesting question. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at the New Yorker. 
So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let me um, just say as an aside that Gabe Sherman and his reporting about, say his name again. Les Wexner. Your reporting on him uh, led you to be, uh, you're in the in the podcast series, Fallen Angel. Uh, just wanted to note that as an aside. But basically the theme of this, of the- He's a star. He's a star, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, you know, the theme of the podcast series and why it's so fascinating is that the theme throughout it is men trying to control and manipulate women and the ways in which they do it and how Victoria's Secret and the culture of its models and the culture of what it was selling to suburban women in malls becomes the context around which Jeffrey Epstein begins to operate, right? I mean, he, the place was ripe for this kind of you know, alleged criminal behavior to take place. You describe, for instance, in the podcast, there's this guy named Ed who controls all the models at Victoria's Secret, who kind of is this gatekeeper, right, around these beautiful women who wear next to nothing on the runway. Then you've got Jean-Luc Burnell, who's this like French modeling agency mogul who was friends, I take it, with Jeffrey Epstein also. And it's basically, there's all this crossover between all these, you know, the between modeling and the retail, and then you've got these finance guys who want in on this, right, on the control of girls and women for their own benefit. Am I getting that roughly correct? Yes, yeah. you are, um, for sure. Um, I mean, I think that there were women involved in this as well. You know, a lot of women worked at Victoria's Secret, but certainly at the top level. Yes, right. Well, that's all, and were, that's a fascinating theme. I mean, we're talking about Gassane Maxwell, but... You talked to a lot of other women who worked at the top levels of the company. They were proud of what they did there. And there may have been some shift in the culture over time, but they didn't really think of themselves as part and parcel of something like that could generate this. No, I don't think so. Um, I'm sort of amazed that there wasn't more awareness of the sort of rampant eating disorders that the models had, um, or some of the models, I guess I should say, had obviously some models just look that way no matter what. But um, the kind of focus on models' diets and the amount that the models should be working out um, would seem to me to, you know, to use a contemporary term to be a real trigger to any women who had an, an, an ex, you know, a history with eating disorders, of which there are so many that I can only assume there were a lot at Victoria's Secret. So I think that, you know, when you look at the sexual harassment stuff that has been alleged, it's not on the level of Harvey Weinstein, right? In, in any way, shape or form. But when you look at some of the ways that the, you know, models for the brand were treating their bodies, you know, you're getting into Nexium territory there of, and I'm not saying the brand was controlling that, but the women were kind of doing it to themselves, but was there an expectation that they'd be very thin and, you know, were they just fulfilling an unsaid obligation? We don't know, right, exactly to what degree they felt that they had to do this to keep their jobs. But to me, like, that's the really insidious 
stuff that they put out an image of what a beautiful woman should be that the the beautiful women working for them couldn't even live up to. And that body is really like a nine-year-old girl's body that just happens to have big boobs, which of course they didn't have most of them because they're fashion models, right? So all these boobs on the runway were not all of them. Obviously you have, you know, Giselle and people who have natural chests, but a lot of those were just flat chested girls with push up, you know, fake, whatever. I don't know what was inside the Raws, but it wasn't flesh. Well, you, know? you, you bring that up in the podcast, which is that over time, uh, the, the sizes of the models shrank through the nineties right. into the two thousands that there was like a, you know, this became a trend line and obviously they became more, uh, you know, prepubescent, right? They, they, their bodies went down to yeah. look like, like you said, like nine, 10 year olds. And it's like, um, it's disturbing. Right. And when you look at like Galen, you know, you're talking about a story that's similar, right? You're talking about the kind of exploitation of these like budding girls that are, you know, at one point you could write the book Lolita about them, but you know, (laughs) like now, you know, this is like sort of a crime against humanity. And it is something that she did with Epstein sort of on the down low, you know, but I feel like, you know, the culture has said that she has to answer for it. For me, Joe, I think You know, I point this out in my Vanity Fair profile of Les Wexner. I think one of the cruel and tragic ironies of Victoria's Secret is that the girls who were shopping at the stores and and contributing to the company's profits were the very girls being targeted by Jeffrey Epstein. And um, what I explored in that piece is that Leslie Wexner's fortune, he was the richest man in Ohio. At one point, he was uh, worth about $7 billion dollars. He's the clearest link we have to where Epstein got his money. I mean, there's no there's no documented evidence that Epstein was some genius financial trader, that he was a savvy investor. What we do know is that he um, got control of Wexner's fortune um, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and for about 17 years had power of attorney to sign checks and do whatever he wanted with Wexner's money. And, um, and I and others, including the Wall Street Journal, have reported that Wexner paid him hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, the Victoria's Secret fortune, the money that that company generated is what financed Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking operation. There's just no other way to put it. And and so I think, you know, in terms of you look at if uh, accountability uh, or culpability, I don't think you can talk about Victoria's Secret without talking about where that money went and what uh, damage it did to so many young girls. Right. And, and Epstein often recruited young women by pretending or posing as a Victoria's Secret recruiter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did, yes. Um, he, would, um, he would use his connections to Wexner and tell, tell girls that he could put them in the catalog, he could make them stars. Um, Alicia Arden is um, one of the women that filed, is the earliest, one of the earliest known women to go to the police about Epstein. She was allegedly assaulted by him in a hotel in Santa Monica, California in 1997. And she claims that Epstein lured her to the hotel um, under the auspices of an interview for Victoria's Secret. So yes, he not only benefited financially from um, conning uh, and grifting off Wexner, he then used Victoria's Secret's credentials to prey on women. 
So let's uh, talk a little bit more about Wexner because he, he's got this, uh, he, he's a kind of a remote figure in all of this, right? He's, he's in Ohio. He's kind of a prominent character in Columbus. And uh, he's built his own kind of like country club community out there, right? Kind of living in an alternative reality in a way. I think the clearest way to, to think about Wexner is that he's a, a nebishy guy, a nerd, you know, by all accounts, a business genius, a retail genius. He was bullied by his overbearing Jewish mother. He was not cool. Um, he had no real friends, no social cachet. And he meets Epstein um, in the mid-1980s. And Epstein at the time is a young player in Manhattan. He's soon at the arm of Ghislaine Maxwell. Maxwell introduces Epstein to all of her high society connections. And, you know, Wexner becomes infatuated with Epstein. And Wexner uses Epstein to finally get a social life that he had been denied in, in Ohio. Um, he was sort of Wexner's rent-a-friend. And I think the other thing you need to know about Les Wexner is that he was so socially uncomfortable, he literally built his own town in Ohio. He bought up all the farmland around Columbus and built his own town modeled on a, a 18th century um, Georgian, English Georgian village. He sent um, his architects to, um, to Richmond, Virginia, and to see Thomas Jefferson's architecture to recreate in his town. And then he built the largest house in Ohio. It's something like 40,000 square feet. It's like an English country manor. And he lived in this town that he created where he could be in control. And so that is the kind of person that Epstein recognized that could be clearly manipulated. And he did. And, um, and as I said earlier, I think it's, it's very clear at this point that almost all of Wex, uh, Epstein's, a vast amount of Epstein's fortune came directly from money he got from Wexner. Now, here's something I want to pose to the both of you. There's a speculative aspect to this story that we can't really get around. It's been brought up in, in trial, in one of the trials around this case, about what is the nature of their relationship, right? He, um, Wexner was a bachelor into his 50s, overbearing mother. There's a, there's a sort of uh, implication that he and Epstein may have had a romantic or sexual relationship and that this is somehow uh, a part of Epstein's influence. Um, now, I'm not asking you to state as fact whether this is true, but just as speculation and as something that has been alleged and that is out there. What do you guys make of this? I mean, do you, uh, from what you've seen, do you think it could be true? Yeah, I mean, I think what we know for sure is that Epstein was asked about it on the record in a tape deposition by the lawyer, Brad Edwards, who represented a lot of Epstein victims. Um, and he was asked um, under oath whether he had a sexual relationship with Wexner, which Epstein, um, you know, laughed and denied. Now, I think everyone knows Epstein's relationship to the truth is is very thin, so we shouldn't make more of his denial than than uh, we have to. But it's widely speculated that there was that aspect to their relationship. I have no firsthand reporting. You know, I, I talked to you know dozens of people in Columbus, and it was you know everything the topic that almost everyone wanted to discuss, and yet no one could provide firsthand eyewitness accounts to anything beyond, you know, a friendly relationship where Epstein would, you know, rub his shoulders or, or you know, be close with him in public, but nothing beyond that. But I think clearly there was some uh, infatuation that Wexner had with, with Epstein, whether it was sexual or uh, emotional. Um, and whether it was consummated or not, it almost doesn't matter. I think what it reveals is that Epstein was such a cunning psychopath 
that he recognized that this this man, this older man, had this weakness, um, and that he could exploit, and this loneliness that he could exploit. And so, whether you know whether it was actually the, a relationship that progressed beyond just you know emotional uh, infatuation is less interesting to me. Is that, um, and I don't think it was necessarily a blackmail per se. I think literally, from what I can gather, is that Epstein um, cultivated Wexner, where Wexner willingly gave over, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of his fortune, a house, a jet, uh, all of these things, because he wanted uh, to keep Jeffrey in his life. It's almost like a talented Mr. Ripley story, where this psychopath con man winnows his way into the life of a much richer person and essentially almost assumes Wexner's identity. I mean, Wex- Epstein is not a billionaire. He basically assumed the identity of a billionaire. And so um, that's, that's what I find most fascinating about the relationship. And, and as you said in passing earlier, the depth of the relationship is such that uh, Wexner basically gives Epstein control over his money, like legally, to use it. And um, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it was wild. I mean, it's, it's uh, no one in Columbus um, could understand. And in fact, in my Vanity Fair profile of Wexner, I spoke to his original financial advisor, um, the man who predated Epstein, and he did not have control over Wexner's fortune. He did not have power of attorney. And when Ex- Epstein came in and forced uh, him out, his predecessor, Harold Levin, you know, he couldn't understand why Wexner suddenly gave Epstein all of this control over his fortune that he himself didn't have. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, Levin appears in the podcast as well. And um, I want to talk for a minute about something that comes up in the podcast that it just came up in an episode I just heard. So it's on the top of my mind, which is there's a model, uh, a former model who is talking. I believe she was involved with uh, Jean-Luc Burnell, but she talks about going to Paris and becoming a model and all the kind of things that happen. And after being in the orbit of sort of Epstein and Jean-Luc and all these rich uh, people around them, comes to believe that there's a conspiracy here, right? She just, it's in her gut from what she saw and she doesn't have any evidence, but she says, um, it was a hell of a coincidence, she says, basically, that there are all these powerful, awful people together, right? And we're talking about rich men. Let's talk about that for a second, about, you know, there's this whole galaxy of dudes that we know from Bill Gates to uh, Bill Clinton um, to Let's Prince just state Andrew. off the top here, though. We're not going QAnon territory. We're not going. No, we're not. Go- we're not going to go QAnon. Not that deep into the <laughs> okay. conspiracy. Okay. Good. Um, but just like um, 
But they were all, you know, we can draw lines from all of them to Epstein. And there's a question mark there, right? Just based on what you're, you're reporting and what you have seen, read, and heard, Vanessa, I mean, the reason we're interested in it is, be- is partly because some of these pe- figures might have been involved with Epstein. And based on what you've seen, yeah. I mean, you know... <laughs> You know, I hate to be a little bit of an Epstein truther, but I think that there's very little evidence that um, post his sort of lame incarceration that he had in Florida um, in the late 2000s, that there was that much of this, um, you know, raping of young girls going on in his life because we haven't really gotten the evidence of that. Um, when you look at a lot of the stories, they are quite old that are told about him over and over. Ghislaine is going to trial what they're two charges, I think from the nineties actually, right. For her. So I think the idea the, the that charges are from 94 to 04. Yeah. Okay. 94 to 04. So, you know, I think the idea that Bill Gates became entranced with Epstein because he was, um, providing him young girls is sort of Uh, like absurd, but did Epstein create a loose environment? Did he create an anything goes here in my mansion that by the way, one once upon a time was owned by Leslie Wexner on 77th street, that enormous townhouse, um, you know, that this is kind of a paradise of earthly delights and you can be a real man here. Yes, I do think he did that. And I think he allowed people to create that kind of world in their own life because they saw him doing what they thought was like that, um, even if it was all sort of illusion a little bit um, and transgressing. Basically, I think he allowed, he gave like wealthy man men the power to feel like they could transgress um, and there wouldn't really be any consequences for it. But I don't think that you see here, or at least we yet have not had evidence, hard evidence of this in the Epstein case. And this is, again, a case that lawyers and journalists have been looking at for years now. You have, you do not have anything on the level of that actress Charlotte, who went and said, you know, Brett Ratner and the dude, yeah, but I can't remember these guys' names, right? The, the, the. Ron Mayer. Right, Ron Mayer. And um, the other Asian mogul, uh, and I will take back Brett Ratner if he was not as involved, but. And, uh, and K- Carrie Packer too, right? The other billionaire from, Los- from uh, Australia. Sure, you know, she, she's put out a story, right? And we don't know if it's true or not true, but she's put out a story that's, that is very clear. That is, I was used by these guys as a sexual plaything. We're not sure if money changed hands. She felt she was used badly by them. She wanted to get roles. You know, there's a whole kind of network there that she's portraying as a network. We do not have, except for Virginia Jufre, who is again talking about things that happened a very long time ago, another woman who has really been able to connect the dots between and certainly not with Gates. Well, and I think there's, Joe, I think there's two issues here. There's one is, you know, did Epstein facilitate men, powerful men to have sex with 
underage girls, girls younger than 18, which is, which is um, you know, definitely criminal. And then there's the second issue, which Vanessa highlighted, which is did Epstein, you know, fill, populate and fill his life with 19, 22, 23-year-old models that he could, you know, distribute and, and his powerful friends could avail themselves to? I mean, the second one is transgressive. And clearly, if these girls are being, tra- you know, traveled against their will, that's trafficking. But the second one is less of a crime per se. Again, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm prefacing all of this. But, you know, there's two things that the first one is obviously evil and sick. The second one is a grayer area. And I think based on the public evidence now, we have a lot more evidence for the latter than we have of the former. I mean, the only woman, as Vanessa said, the only woman who has so far named names um, is Virginia Roberts Dufre, who in uh, depositions in her lawsuit against uh, Ghislaine Maxwell has named, uh, again, allegedly, and all these guys have denied it, uh, George Mitchell, uh, Bill Richardson, and Prince Andrew as the men that she was trafficked to. Um, and those are the only names after all of these years um, that we have still have on the record. So um, I'm with Vanessa on this. I, I think there is smoke there, but I don't think it's I'm skeptical that it's going to be a house of cards that brings down, you know, the Upper East Side of Manhattan as participating in a pedophile sex ring. Yeah. I mean, when you think about the idea that New York Magazine ran on the cover of the magazine, Epstein's Little Black Book, and all these people were going to somehow be culpable in his sex ring, (laughs) it was pretty out there when we look back in hindsight. Well, and the sad sad thing, this is the pathetic thing about the Little Black Book, is that that was— all those names in that book were actually Ghislaine Maxwell's friends and names. And Epstein knew not very many of them. And he was such a desperate social climber that he put them in that book. And when their names came out, a lot of these people were horrified because they're like, I barely even know this person. But Epstein liked to present himself to others. He cultivated this illusion that he was the most connected person in the world. Um, And so, yes, I think the black book itself is not evidence of anything more than you know, Epstein's, you know, desperation to be a networker. I want to back up a little bit because, uh, and one of the reasons that we're fascinated with this story is it hits a lot of larger things that are happening in the world. There was the Me Too movement. There have been lots of populist revolts against rich people from both the left and the right. And I think on some level, uh, you know, the reason people create a conspiracies around, you know, rich guys are having a private bordello on an island, you know, the reason our imaginations sort of connect those dots in ways that might not be factual is that we're all human beings and we all, you know, have like taboo thoughts and people hear these stories and on some level uh, they feed some kind of like um, sick idea of what they think must be going on in the world, right? Uh, but it feeds it because they know it could be possible, right? And it's like if we look out through human history, you know, harems, right? We know that this is like a, a thing that can exist. And if you were a billionaire for whom the world was your oyster, you could have anything happen, right? That you might do this, right? I'm not saying I would. I'm not saying Gabe Sherman would. But um, we know human nature. We know how gross men are, and it's all been revealed in this Me Too movement anyway, and so we see it all the time. I just wondered, like, um, you know, we've been involved with the details of the trial, and we want to speculate about 
Leslie Wexner and, and, and other characters involved in this. But do you think this could happen now with the younger generation of women and teenagers? Could this happen again? Could men get away with this level of manipulation? No, no, because everybody has has cameras on their phones now. So now all of this stuff would have been captured. I mean, do you think that there would not have been a million videos of, of what happened on Jeffrey Epstein's plane, like floating around? You know, the only reason there aren't is because this happened like 15 years ago or whatever. We, we think, as you've just heard from me and Gabe, we think most of it happened in the 2000s. Um, yeah, I think the idea that if billionaires are doing it, they can get away with it. And I think that some of them probably have girls sign NDAs right away. Um, and I think girls are afraid of guys who have a lot of money and who might even threaten to sue them. And there's all sorts of crazy shit like that that can happen. Plus, let's not forget, you know, in parts of the world, people just like, you know, rich men just have harems, period, right? Through like the Arab world. But um, there's, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a really weird topic for me as a woman because I go back and forth on it. Like part of me feels like, God, like if you're, if you're a man who can have anything he wants, why would this not be part of the buffet? Like, what's the fun of having like the jet if you can't have, you know, three models on it with you? Um, not obviously underage, but like, you know, if you're doing everything lawfully, why would this not be part of your lifestyle? And then there's another part of me that's like, it's just very juvenile, you know, and I think there's a phase that a lot of rich guys go through and billionaires go through where they want to do that. Or, you know, we see Bezos kind of having a midlife crisis, right? And he wants to have the bosomy girlfriend. Um, It sort of feels like it's something that they play with, but they don't stay in that arena if they really want to like you know, be normal people who grow, who aren't just like living out their 19 year old fantasy of like, oh, I get models now. To answer your question, I don't think that even like Victoria's Secret could ever happen again. Like, I think you would have models like being like, look in this toilet, I just threw up in here. Like, this is what I have to do to be a Victoria's Secret model. And they'd be putting that on their iPhones and like walking out the door, like shit like that would happen now. But Vanessa, even even more than that, I think the the ideal, the sort of career track for models now is not to walk that runway as an angel. It's like Carly Kloss to be a coder and like start, uh, you know, her own company. I think models now, you know, look at modeling as a means to an end, which is to be, you know, an entrepreneur or a businesswoman. I think, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s, it was like, you know, sexuality as an end to itself was what modeling was about. And I think now with, you know, and this is, you know, obviously a good thing, you know, models want to be taken seriously, not only for their bodies. Yeah, it's almost as if this entire story is a referendum on the last century's, you know, conception of of women and how women can present themselves and be mm-hmm. in the world. And also, you know, like you said, this like uh, it's it's to the men's side, too, that these rich guys who are all of a certain age, right, they kind of uh, 
became so focused on whatever they were doing to gain power and wealth uh, that they never grew and that they are basically like inner 15-year-old is wagging the dog of their entire you know, late, late adult life <laughs> in this pathetic way that we don't find acceptable anymore. And I mean, it's not like you don't still see it in the culture. I mean, if you watch like, uh, you know, cheerleaders on the football field are still some aspect of this, <laughs> you know, vision of what men and women are supposed to be in the kind of like all American way, right? Um, and Victoria's Secret was always a part of that. And it found its footing in the most like populist place, you know, in America, which was the mall, but now malls are dead, right? <laughs> so, you know, I feel like um, in, in some ways we have to go through the process of exposing ourselves to all this ugliness so that we can like uh, have reformations, right? Have a renaissance about how women and men can be in, the, in, in society, right? Yeah. Definitely. And, you know, like the, I mean, the, the look that people want now is like, uh, Ella, you know, vice president Harris's, uh, stepdaughter, I believe is what she is. Right. That's the look that a lot of young people are going after. Like she's a model, but she looks pretty alt. And, um, you know, I, I think, I mean, I talked to Amy LaRocca, our former colleague for this podcast and, she said, and I think she's right, like what a stupid mistake the fashion industry made to say that there was only one way to be beautiful, like, and you had to be, you know, basically starving um, because they just made a lot of people who would have bought jeans, you know, feel like they could only buy a lipstick because they couldn't fit into anything or they didn't look right when they fit into it because they didn't have those identical proportions that the clothes and, you know, the lingerie and all that were made for. And I think that that might be kind of over. And I think a lot of the kind of like, you know, more like language based stuff, the woke ish stuff will die out. But I do think that the body diversity and like, wow, that's a plus size model, but she's gorgeous, you know, or that's a black woman who has a huge birthmark on her cheek, but she's gorgeous. Like, I think that will stick around yeah. just if only because it's interesting to look at and reflects America today. Yeah. You, know? you really cued me into the idea that, yeah, tech, how much technology has to do with this, because you mentioned earlier that, you know, nowadays, Every young woman has a camera, and if there's grody men around, they can record them or take pictures of them. You know, it's like it would be hard to get away with all of this stuff. I don't think it's only exposing the predatory behavior, which is important. I think technology has also forced it's you know blown away the gatekeepers, right? Well, I and was so just about to say that exactly. Yeah, exactly. I agree with this. Yeah, the fashion magazines and the women's magazines used to be the gatekeepers or what the feminine ideal was. And now you have all these girls with TikToks and, and um, Snapchat and Instagram pages. You know, there is just an unlimited number of ways to, see, to build an audience around, you know, different body shapes and sizes. And so I think, you know, this is also a reflection of the digital world that we live in. Epstein was a, was a reflection of the analog world, right? He could exist because there were no, there was no, you know, there's no cameras the only way gossip like this got out was page six. Like, you know, we now live in a much more, you know, small D democratic world, which is a good thing. And I think that is, you know, inherently part of why Victoria's Secret also was 
was sort of swept aside was because they were they didn't change when the culture went digital. They were, you know, I think it's no secret that Victoria, you know, the mall and the catalog were the ways that they connected with their consumers. Well, exactly. I mean, Victoria's Secret in the mall was a kind of gatekeeper, too. And um, on a personal note here for a second, all three of us are parents. Um, I believe all three of us have daughters. I have a teenage daughter. And um, I, for one, find a great relief uh, that this has all happened. And I remember when I was thinking about doing this story, uh, this episode with you guys, I was like, oh, God, I got to pay attention to this Epstein story again, which is... um, I find repulsive and kind of feel dirty after I have listened and read about it. But on another level, it's something that we kind of have to face down. And the more we explore it, the more I feel like we're helping ourselves hit the reset button on this kind of uh, culture. Yeah. And I'm glad that our daughters didn't grow up like 10 years ago when this stuff was just, you know, when like the thong was every what every. 12 year old girl wanted to wear and not like our girls are not going to get into tons of trouble, but at least it's not like I need my low rise jeans with my thong sticking out the back. And, you know, it's just like, uh, and and at least, I mean, you know, the crazy thing of course is that young people today are having like less sex, sex later, blah, 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 blah. Cause everybody's on their, you know, phones all the time. So Um, it's, uh, it's not a bad time to have young girls. Like I, I feel excited that my daughter is growing up now. Yeah. Well, and even all the pitfalls that we hear about on Instagram and social media, which is a toxic thing for teenage girls. I can just tell you firsthand, it's constantly generating a conversation because people are, are always having, you know, parents are talking about it. They're talking about it with the kids, talking about it with each other. Uh, you know, we're constantly analyzing what it is images are doing to kids and to our girls. So this has been a much more philosophical conversation than I had imagined it would be, and I'm really glad it did. I want to thank Vanessa and Gabe for coming on Inside the Hive. Super buzzy, but also smart. And I appreciate that very much. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe, for being our beekeeper today. That is my new (laughs) title. I'm going to get it on the masthead. I'm going to call Radik Jones right after this podcast. Your beekeeper in chief. (laughs) Okay. That's our podcast this week. I'd like to thank Vanessa Gregoriadis and Gabe Sherman for coming on the podcast. Superstars of the Hive. Thanks to producer Brett Fuchs. Thanks to the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this podcast happen. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe. Come back next week. Please support our sponsors the way they support this podcast. We'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, 
and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.